Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Faith That Works. All too often our minds are deceived into believing that faith is a little pipsqueak of wishful thinking. In reality, when God's grace moves upon us and awakens us to the gospel, it enables us to do the work of believing. This work is known as faith, and it is nothing short of a cataract of rippling power and energy flowing from God into us, enabling us to believe. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. You know, it's, uh, this is somewhat of a dangerous place to go to church. And that is because if you go to a church that doesn't bear witness to the truth, in a sense, you have all sorts of excuses why you don't live truth. But if you come to a place which is going to speak it straight and to give you that which you know is true in accordance with the word of God, you must not just heed it, but respond to it. And what's dangerous about this environment is we all have a propensity to be hearers and not doers. But to not be a doer when you are a hearer is extremely dangerous for your soul. And so I want to freshly exhort you to not just hear. You must respond. If there is anything that God has made clear to your soul, you must obey. You must take a step forward and do it. That's actually what this message is about. Uh, The name is Faith That Works. Now, when you see a title like that, this title could mean multiple things. In fact, I can imagine most of us, our original default is faith that can accomplish something. Faith that... Uh, is able to accomplish its ends. And that's true. That is the faith we're talking about. But this is a faith that clocks in when it goes to, to work in the Father's business. You see, when Jesus was about the Father's business, and a good question for our souls is, are we about the Father's business? And if we are doing the work of the Father, what are we doing? Well, as Scripture says it, there's a very singular work that we are to be doing as Christians, and that is believing. That's why we're called believers. We work. We work for our king. And then even as I say that, some of you are like, no, we're not supposed to work. No, we're Christians. We don't do works. And yet, the opposite is actually true. We are supposed to be working, but we're supposed to be working in a completely different way than the rest of the world. Most of the religious sector They attempt to work their way into heaven. They try and work their way into the great good graces of God. That's not what we do. We come humbly before the throne of grace, clothed in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves us, that brings us unto that grand, white, holy throne room. And when we come there, we get an assignment. But we don't get that assignment, and we're supposed to carry it out in our own strength. We get the strength of God to carry out the assignment. Faith that works. For by grace are you saved through faith. So how are you saved according to that very first line that I made all huge for you? You're saved by grace through faith. Okay, you notice it didn't say anything about works there. How are you saved? You're saved by faith. So you're saved by grace through the work of faith. Grace which I'm not going to have a lot of opportunity to go into, but it isn't just a hug from God. It is the power of God given to accomplish what only God can accomplish. So we are saved by the work of God, you could say, through faith, through believing in it. Look at the cross. That is the work of God. 
And when we look upon it and we believe and we say, that work is for me, that work is sufficient for me, we are saved. Listen to this. And that not of yourself. In other words, you didn't do it. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So works, we don't want to touch that. We don't want to try and boast in our own work. It is the work of God that did it. And that's just good old classic Christianity. But now we're going to sort of mess with that. And we're going to go into the book of James, which has caused a lot of people some heartburn uh, over the years. Because right when we get it down that it's not our work that saves us, then James goes off. And in in the second chapter of James, it says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? I, I, I think so. I, I thought so. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Seeth thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Ye see, ye see then how that by faith, by, I'm sorry, how that by works a man is justified. Did, did you just read that line correctly? You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? What? That doesn't sound right. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Uh, leave it to the church of Ellerslie to uncork this can of worms. Why don't we just sort of act like it didn't say that and just sort of move on? What saves us again? I thought it was, we're saved by grace through faith and this not of works that any of us should boast. Huh? So then what's this? What's it talking about? See, the word in the Greek here in James chapter 2 is a word called ergon. It is a working. Faith that doesn't work is dead. Yeah, it's actually a true statement. Faith that doesn't go out and do the work of faith is not real faith. That's what James is saying. Faith, if it is real faith, works. You are saved by this faith, and if it's a true faith, guess what? It's going to go about and do the business of the Father. And I'll explain this. We'll go through it in great detail, and you'll find that both of these scriptures that we have been reading this morning thus far are both true simultaneously, and they're not in contradiction with each other. From death to life. So look at the first line. Okay, Act like the other ones aren't there yet. Dead believing alive. Okay, so you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses, it says in, scriptures, in, in Scripture. We do not yet see Jesus Christ. We are dead. We are in Adam, and we have inherited all his bad stuff. And we are dead in our sins. And yet, something happens, and we believe. And then what happens when you believe? Well, you become alive. And so there's a nice little formula for you right there. Dead, believing, alive. That's the process of coming to life. From death unto life. There was a tree in the Garden of uh, Eden, and it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And And God said, the day in which you eat of that, you will surely die. And he was telling the truth. And guess what? They ate of it, and the day in which they ate of it, they surely died. Most of us, when we think about death, only think about mortal death. Adam and Eve were still walking around. They still seemed to be alive. Mortally, yes, they were alive, but spiritually, they died. And Jesus also said that there's another tree 
we'll put it over here, the tree that Jesus hung on. It's called Calvary. And he says, unless, the, unless you eat of the fruit of that tree, you cannot live. And so if you turn to this tree, you die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you turn to this tree and you believe. See, what did they do over here? They disbelieved God. They believed the devil. That's what they did. They believed lie. But we turn and we repent and we believe truth and we live. Okay, so we have dead believing alive. Now look at this second one, which will help clarify how the believing even works. Dead, and then what happens? Something happens, and it's the work of God. It's that which saves you. And it is called grace. It is the work of God. Now how did you even believe in the first place? Well, God's working on you. He's the one that saves you. I don't know, you think you saved yourself? Yeah, you can't save yourself. God saves you. And even to believe, God's like, working. He's awakening. He's stirring. He's blowing upon your soul. He's doing something that's causing you to even see. Your eyes are open. You're like, huh, God. And you see the cross. He turns your chin and you see the cross. And he says, believe. You see, there's a grace that works. And then you believe. And then what happens? You come alive. Okay, now let's break that down even more. And this is what this message is going to be about. We're going to break believing into five components, five pieces. Most people think that believing is like a true-false test. Did Jesus Christ die on the cross 2,000 years ago? And we go, true? They're like, oh, you're fine. And yet, their life doesn't change. They're still dead. You see, faith or believing is not just a mental cognizant understanding of something. It involves something. It's a working faith. Faith, if it's real, works. It does something. It has an action to it. So we have someone who's dead, and then grace comes. And then what do they have? Someone has a knowledge. They have a knowledge that there's one known as Jesus Christ, and he died 2,000 years ago. They could even hear that he died for them. They could know that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. You could know these things. However, it doesn't necessarily mean it changes you. You Satan knows these things. It doesn't necessarily change you to know something. I could know that there's a burger and brats barbecue down the street and anyone who shows up gets a free one. That doesn't mean I have a burger or brat in my digestive system. I could know about it, but that doesn't mean I'm partaking of the good stuff. So what I have is still dead, still dead, still dead. It's, we, many of us, have lived in our life knowing about the truth of Jesus Christ, but we're still dead. And then the next day we wake up, you know what, strangest thing, we're still dead. And yet I know about Jesus. Knowing about a historical person, knowing about a historical event, doesn't necessarily mean that you're alive. So then we have grace that comes. Now, if this was going to be done in a way that you could see it more correctly, that last little bit of dead grace knowing, still dead, still dead, would be moved to the next page so you'd see the whole thing. And then grace comes, and what do you do? You reckon it. Reckon is a term that we're going to look at very briefly today in Romans chapter 6, and it's an accounting term, where you look at the cross and you say, that cross work is mine, and you actually account it into your column, into your books. That is mine. His death is my death. His burial is my burial. My old man is no longer alive. That's reckoning. And so you actually take something to your own account. Okay, we used the illustration at Ellerslie. We had Kevin was standing up over here, right, right about in here. 
And uh, I had told Kevin that outside those doors was a test. And I think it was the $9.50 test. Was that right? $9.50? It was just a $9 test. There was a $9 test just outside those doors. And I said, do you have any money in your pocket? He goes, no. I go, well, the next time you hit out those doors, you're going to fail again. And that's our life. You see, what it demands for us to pass the, the $9 test is you have to have substance. You have to have the ability in, of yourself to have the resources to pay the $9. And yet, we don't have it. Kevin didn't have it. And so I saw Kevin's need. And so I put a $10 bill in the back room. And I told him about it. I said, there's a $10 bill, and it's for you. And I told him exactly where it was. And I asked him a question. I said, do you have... Uh, $9 in your pocket. Do you have that which it takes to meet that test in and of yourself? And he said, no. Listen to this. And then I said, but do you have it? And he said, yes. I go, how do you have it? He said, by faith. Faith in what? Your word. That's right. That's what reckoning is. You see, he actually, though his pocket still did not have anything in it of himself, he had something. What did he have? He had $10 by faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in my word that I'd said it was there, and he trusted my character. And guess what? There was $10 there. That's Eric talking to someone. What about when God promises? And God says, I have made provision for you at the cross. I know in and of yourself and in your own pockets, you don't have it. And I know every time you've walked out those doors, you failed. But now everything shifts. That cross is yours. 2,000 years ago, something was done for you, and it's still waiting for you to take it today. So believe. Believe in what? His word. You take him at his word, and you credit it to your account, and it's called reckoning. And grace, then you reckon, and then you're even more alive. And then what happens? Grace comes in. And grace continues to press the agenda of life in your soul. You see, God isn't just satisfied when you reckon. Now he's like, go and take it. Go and get it. And presenting is the concept of yielding up your body and saying, God, if you purchase this with your blood, then you get it. You purchase my body, you get it. And we present our bodies unto God. And then what happens? We're even more alive. And then what comes? Grace. Grace is continually pressing God's agenda in our life. He is doing the work. And what is he doing? He's moving us to exert. And he's saying, now you have this? Use it. Take this faith. Take this strength. Spend it. And what happens? You're even more alive. And then what? Grace. Grace comes and pushes you even further. And what do you do? Now you obey. These are the elements of faith. The five components of believing. We had knowing, reckoning, presenting, exerting, and obeying. And what happens when you begin to obey the word of God at every turn? Not just in one situation, but in everything. Well, you have life abundant and full of glory. You have the life of Jesus. Saving faith. So I'm going to work through a few illustrations here, and some of you are going to recognize these that were here in May. Some great uh, drawings that Eric put together for you. (laughs) So we got a guy. That's a guy, by the way. And you see his eyes, and he's looking down, and that's a mouth. See that black circle thing? That's a mouth. I know it's a little awkward, but I had to move it off to the side because I needed some arrows uh, to be able to go through. Because I had to show eyesight and I had to show a mouth, an appetite. Okay, you notice how the guy is rather heavy? Mm-hmm. You see, he's gaining a lot of weight and he's not very healthy. You know why? He's eating the wrong stuff. Okay, you see, his eyes 
The eyes of his soul or his appetite are squarely fixed on something that is not healthy for him. And that's all he knows. He is actually ignorant that there is any food better than the food that he is turning to. And so what is he eating? He eats the only thing he knows. And yet if you don't know that there is anything that can make you healthier, then you can never turn to it. And so we're going to call this ignorant unbelief. All you have is what you know. And so as a result, you're living in ignorance and you're unbelieving. Because all you see with your eyes, so one of the terms in, in, in Scripture is to behold with your eyes. That is the concept of faith, to look upon the cross. When you look upon the cross, when you behold your Savior, that's the concept of believing. Well, if all you have is beholding that which is going to kill you, you're ignorant and you're unbelieving. And the wages of that is death. Okay, so let's move to the next one. Oh, no, we just switch something around. Look at this guy. You see, he's still, we're going to, you see that line in the middle? That's sort of a dividing line where he hasn't crossed over. This guy is still living a very, very unhealthy life. Do you notice that his weight, if anything, he only gained more weight from the previous screen to this one. And yet, he actually believes that this fruit, these fruits and vegetables are healthy. He's heard about them now. He understands that he's probably supposed to be eating them. But what does he continue to do with his life? What does he stick into his mouth? He's still sticking the junk into his mouth. And as a result, he's still dying, though he knows about the good food. How many of us does that description fit? Whoa, what is this? We're going to call it stunted, non-working, unrepentant belief. A better way of saying it, because if some of you would say, well, he believes in it, isn't he fine? You, you answer that question. Does this guy look fine to you? He gained even more weight. This guy's not healthy, and he's continuing to stick in his mouth that which is killing him. He knows about the good stuff, but the good stuff has no ability to help him. And there's a reason for that, because believing is not just knowing about something. You see, faith that saves is a faith that actually works. It does something. It shifts the life. Okay, so this man knows about it, but he doesn't have any of the benefit of it. And this is how most Christians in modern Christianity have lived. We have lived staring over at the pile of good stuff, the cross, and yet we continue to serve the flesh and to serve the appetite of our sinful man. Look at that guy. The guy lost weight overnight. Everything switched. He repented. You see, the other one was unrepentance. He did not leave behind the junk. But in this case, the man repented, and he left behind the junk. His eyes are fixed on the good stuff, and now he has opened up his life or his mouth to allow the good stuff in. And as a result, he immediately loses the weight. He immediately unclogs the arteries. And we can call this repenting and believing, a.k.a true Christianity. That's, that's what saves you. It doesn't save you to know about a pile of good food. It saves you to leave the bad stuff behind and go and eat the good food. And I know there's some of you in here that are offended that I'm using food as the illustration. It's just an illustration, okay? There's a moral, the moral content in food is, is not as high as all the other stuff we're going to be talking about. However, hopefully you can at least catch the concept and love my drawings at the same time. Three options for the soul. One is you can be ignorant of truth. 
Some of us actually almost wish we could go back in time and just be ignorant of truth. You don't really want to be ignorant of truth. Ignorance of truth still leads to death, and yet you don't have the same guilt associated with it, the same levels of condemnation while you're still alive. I'm just ignorant. I don't know that there's good stuff, therefore I don't feel bad about eating the bad stuff. If you don't know that there's good stuff, then there's no conviction of sin. And that's why we don't want the law. We don't want anything to come in and convict us. However, to remain ignorant of truth is still death. We can also have a dead faith. And this is where most of us have lived. Where we're knowledgeable of truth without proper soul response. It's a non-functional faith or a faith that does not work. It does not clock in and go about the Father's business. It is a non-functional faith. And we could call it a dead faith. And then there is number three, a working faith. A faith that works. It has a knowledge of the truth, it reckons with the truth, and it responds to the truth. That's a faith that works. The fear of works. Yes, it's a very, very real thing in Christianity. Some of you that have come from super conservative environments are right there with everyone that's like paranoid about works. It's like, well, are we going back to legalism here, Eric? Because I've spent most of the last five years of my life trying to extricate myself from all that baggage. Well, I don't want to stick you back under the law. When you're in Christ, you're under grace. You are enabled by him to carry out the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of God isn't thrown out. We don't like throw out and ditch the righteousness of God just because people have tried to gain the righteousness of God through their own strength, through their own ambition, through their own hard work, grit, and determination. They've been going about it the wrong way. Jesus Christ is the one who has done it. He's the one who has gained us the righteousness of God. So we turn unto him. However, Christianity is not the absence of work. It is the presence of the right sort of work. And that's what we need to clarify. We'll clarify two different works. First, the work of the law, or leaning on Adam's ability and efforts to save, a.k.a. the flesh. When we are, we're supposed to be born again is the concept. We're, supposed to, we're in Adam, it says, and we're supposed to be in Christ. When we believe upon Jesus, his work on the cross, we actually are clothed in Jesus and we enter into Jesus. The term is baptism. Baptism is an immersion or a putting in to something. And so when we believe in Jesus, we are baptized into Christ, baptized into his death. So therefore, when he went to the cross, it's as if we went to the cross and we share in the work of that cross and it slays our old life, our old man, and our old man dies so that now a new man can live and that new man is Jesus Christ. And now our body, though it be the same old body, has a new dwelling, a new dweller in it. The power of the life of Jesus Christ is supposed to move on in. And this is the transformation of a human being in Christianity. The work of the law doesn't include that. The work of the law is attempting to become a new person through our own effort, through our own righteousness. I can do it, God. If you just give me another week, I think I can figure this out. And so we try and beat down our body. We try and deal with the old man. We can't do it. You know those propensities, those longings, those lusts that we have? And you're like, no, I can't have that. This is killing me. And yet you can't put it down. You can't stop it. That's the work of the law, where you're trying to be good, you're trying to maintain a righteousness, and yet you don't have the power. You don't have the ability. And that is legalism. 
That's you attempting to be right or legally correct with God in your own self-effort. It's condemned by God in the Bible. It doesn't work. And it leads you only to despair. I can't is what it leads you to. And God says, now I can help you. You see, when you finally come to the place where you acknowledge, I can't do this, he goes, bingo. What's the conclusion? But you can. You have. You will. He is able. And that's the gospel. So here's the second type of work. And yes, it's a work. It is the work of faith. The work of the law can't save you, but the work of faith can. Leaning on Jesus' ability and efforts to save, a.k.a., also known as, the Spirit. You see, the law or the flesh attempts to work in you, and it leads to death. But when the Spirit of God overtakes your life, he wants to work in you too. It's called the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit wants to labor within you to take this body and make it function as it ought to function. And yet, it's not to death, it's to life. And the way the Spirit of God works within us actually changes us. It alters our life. It showcases to this world around us who Jesus Christ is. And it is a real work. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay. How does faith work? When faith goes to work, how does it function? What's faith doing? It cracks its knuckles. It's like, I'm ready to work. Put me to work, God. He goes, all right, here's your job. Believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, is that all? That's the work of God. That's what you're supposed to be doing. When you clock in for God Almighty and you present your body before him, you say, put me to work. He says, all right, believe. Now, if I were to ask you, so how do you do that? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, that's what this message is for. So we know how to believe. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Doesn't that sound a little too simple? He's supposed to say something like, rescue the orphan. He's supposed to say something like, feed the hungry. He's supposed to say, clothe the naked. That's practical for us. Believe is not practical. And yet, if you believe, everything comes into alignment. You, are, you will be helping the orphan. You will be feeding the hungry. You will be clothing the naked. However, your job is to keep your gaze fixed on Jesus Christ. He's how I do it. He's my strength. He's the power. I'm not going to look to myself to try and appease God or to please God or to demonstrate God. I'm going to look to him to demonstrate himself in and through me. My job is to believe, to keep my gaze fixed on him and let him do the work in and through me. Faith and believe, what's the difference? You see, you've heard that we're saved by faith. And then you've heard it said that you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is there a difference between these? Is faith and believe two different concepts? Let's settle that weird myth once and for all. Faith is the noun, pistis. It's the operation. The overall operation of faith is pistis. It's typically translated in our Bibles as faith. But then when faith works, when faith is active, when faith is engaged, while believe is the verb, pastuyo, same concept, same Greek word, 
When it's a noun, it's pistis, and it's translated faith. When it's action and it's a verb, it's called pistuyo. And then it's typically translated as belief. It's the same word. So it'd be a little easier if we used the same, translated it into the same word for us to, noun, and then when the noun went active, it sounded similar. But it's the same, and that's what I want you guys to know. One is the operation, it's the noun, and the other is the action. Faith and belief are the exact same concept. To have pistis, or faith, and not pistuyo, or and not do the action of faith, is ridiculous. You see, to have the noun, faith, and then not to put it into action and believe, is ridiculous. And that's what James is saying. Faith without working is dead. If faith, I mean, you see the pile of good food, if you don't repent and go over and get skinny and start eating the good food, it's ridiculous. It's dead. It's not helping you at all. That's what James is saying. It's like having eyes and not opening them to see. It's like having a tongue and not using it to speak. It's like having ears but not listening with them. It's like having money but not using it to pay your bills. It's like having a cell phone and not using it. Every little kid could fill in the and there. It's like having a car. I need to get over across town. And then someone looks at you. You have a car. Use it. It's like having clothes and uh, not putting them on. You need to wear those crazy things. And if you don't, they don't offer you their strength. You have faith. Use it. If you truly believe this is true, prove it by letting it work. If you have faith, if you have pistis, then pastuo. Don't just have pistis. Use that pistis and pastuo. Do it. Go to the verb. Don't just hang out with the big word. Believe. Put your feet to work and start doing the work of faith. Faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Listen to this scripture. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Where did you get faith in the first place? Did you drum it up inside of yourself? And you were dead, and then you decided to drum up some faith. You're like, you know what? I just need some faith. I'm really tired of being dead. And so you drummed up some faith. You know that faith was a gift to you? God gave you faith. It's an action of grace. By his grace, he gave you faith. And you're like, huh? One of these, I mean, if we were all to describe how we came to life and how we even saw Jesus for the first time, it's sort of hard to describe. One day you didn't believe in him, and the next day you're thinking, huh, he's real. I mean, how does this work? It's a gift. God gave you faith. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Wait a minute, says God. I gave you faith. Now where's the believing? I gave you faith. Now believe. That's the work of God. That's the work of faith. You can't just have a knowledge of God. You must do something with it. And if you don't, you die. It's that simple. You could know that God exists. You could know that he came in the person of Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. You could know all the details about the fact that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners and he died a criminal's death hanging on a tree. You could know that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. You could know that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. You, know, you could know that he's coming again someday to get you. However, 
if you do not believe, if you do not turn that into a work of faith, if you do not go after that and claim it, take hold of it in the grip of your soul, you don't have anything. Dead faith does not save. You've been given faith, now use it. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. So I put uh, a couple different Greek words in this sentence. From every, for everyone to whom pistis, or faith, is given, from him, pistuyo, or believing, will be required. Yeah, just makes sense, doesn't it? How about this one? For every, this is just to expand my illustration. For everyone to whom eyes are given, from him, seeing, will be required. You could say, well, I didn't see it. Didn't I give you eyes? We could say, well, I, I didn't know I was supposed to use them. What are you given eyes for? This gift of grace so that you could see. That's what he's given us. He's given us eyes to see the cross. Now behold it. Take hold of that which God has given you. You've seen it, and that's a gift of grace. To believe. We'll call it the art of Christian doing. A lot of us have been paranoid about the fact that we don't want to do anything in our Christian life because that's works. Well, if you don't do something in your Christian life, your Christian life isn't real. One of the evidences that you have a Christian life, L-I-F-E, it means you're alive, is that you breathe, is that you act as if you're alive. And you can't do that yourself. You can mimic it, you can fake it, and that's legalism, but I'm talking about the real thing. You've been brought to life. You've been changed, and as a result, the world around you begins to see certain fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can't fake these things. This is the real stuff of heaven come to earth and planted inside of us. So to believe the art of Christian doing, there's our five things. Knowing, reckoning, presenting, exerting, and obeying. So let's go through Romans 6. Romans 6 details each of these six things. I'm sorry, each of these five things. And it goes through each one of them. Paul is giving a command for each one of these. And Romans 6 is the ultimate picture of a man going from death unto life. It is. It's just profound. What a picture. So let's start with the knowing. Is the knowing bad? Of course not. If you don't know about the good food, you won't know to leave the bad food to go get it. So if you don't know, if I don't know about the burger and brats barbecue down the road, I will never even have the opportunity to go. You must know, and then you respond to the know. The problem is many of us know, but we never did anything with that knowledge. We never responded to it. We had faith, but we didn't have pastuyo. We didn't believe. We didn't activate that faith. So here it is in Romans 6. Know you not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? So it's like Paul saying, you need to know this, guys. You need to know that when you believe upon Jesus Christ, you're baptized into Christ. You're put in him. And if you are put in him, that means you are in his death and the old man is crucified. Didn't anyone ever tell you this? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And knowing that, Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You have to know it. If you don't know it, you can't respond to it. But that's not the only thing Paul gives as a command in Romans 6. He says, do you know this to be true? And then if your answer is, I do, then he says, then reckon it. 
Reckon it yours. Remember I was talking about the illustration with Kevin? And there's a $9 test. And if I were to tell him, do you have what you need to pass that $9 test on yourself? Do you have the resource in your own pocket? His answer is the woeful, no, I don't. But have you heard the word of God? Do you know that there is a $10 bill in the back room? He's like, I have heard that. Then reckon it. It's yours, Kevin. Take it. And so let me ask you the question again, Kevin. Do you have what it takes to pass that test? Now, he could check his own pockets and say, no, I don't. But he's not supposed to check his own pockets. I'm not talking about him looking to himself for the solution. He's not his own savior. But now he looks to the word of God and he says, I believe. Yes, I have what it takes. How do you have it? I have it by faith. Faith in what, though? It's not just a random hope and a whim or an imagination. It's, it's faith in something very credible and strong, and that is the promise of God. We have been given the promise of God, and we have faith in it, and we believe, and we take it to our account. We know it to be true, and then we reckon it to our account. And so Paul says in Romans 6.11, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know that when Jesus died, if you believed in him, that means you died with him 2,000 years ago. You're supposed to reckon that to your account, I believe. That means your conclusion is, my old man is crucified with him 2,000 years ago. It's just a fact. It's a done deal. And you can actually begin to live in accordance with that. But not just that he was, he was crucified with Christ. Not just that he was buried with Christ, but then Christ came back to life. And if, if I'm in Christ, that means that when he raised from the dead, so did I. And I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul says. Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. A third dimension, presenting. So Paul has said you need to know this, and then you need to reckon it. And then he says, and you need to present. The word for yield here, actually is the word present. Have you ever heard, uh, like in Romans 12, it says present your bodies a living sacrifice? That's the same word as yield here. It means to present and yield. It's a hard, hard word to describe because it's like that semi-truck that's coming up to the warehouse going, dee, 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 backing up. And you are the owner of the warehouse and you want what is in that semi. So what, what do you do? You yield. You open up the doors of your warehouse to it. You say, come on, come here. And then you, they open up the back end of their semi and they have a lot of cargo in there, and you yield and allow, you present, and then you yield to all that incoming cargo, and that's a command. Paul says, have you presented and have you yielded? You see, Jesus Christ gave everything for you, and he purchased your body at that cross. Have you given it to him? So, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield, present and yield. Open up the doors and allow the cargo in. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul makes it sound so easy, doesn't he? I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Remember that way that you used to open up the doors of your life and allow the enemy to bring his cargo in? All the pleasures of the flesh. Remember that? The same way now. 
When God comes, you open up the door of your life and say, now what you have comes in. Remember how you used to open up your mouth for that uh, McDonald's meal? Uh Uh-huh. And then you turned and repented of that. Sorry, McDonald's. Uh, And you turned to the good stuff, the health food. You repented, and overnight you became thin. It's an amazing reality, and this is how it works in the kingdom of heaven. You say no to that semi that is bringing the stuff of sin. You say, nope. This house isn't open to that anymore. I let not that stuff in anymore. I'll get to that scripture. However, when God is coming now, in the same way you used to open up to the devil, now you say, God, you can come in. This place belongs to you. This is the work of faith. If you truly do believe, this is what you do. And faith without this work is dead. What is a warehouse that's claiming to have all the stuff of heaven that has never opened up its life and let the stuff of heaven in. How do you have the stuff of heaven if you never let it in? You see, faith without the stuff of heaven inside is dead. Faith without presenting and yielding is dead. So you must know it, you must reckon it, and you must present. Oh, one of my favorites, to exert. A lot of us are passive in our Christian life. In other words, we're waiting for God to do it. And, you know, there's, I'm not going to argue with you in saying that it must be God that does it. However, we oftentimes look at ourselves as a bystander, a passive bystander just sort of watching our life going, oh, I wonder what God's going to do with me. I wonder if he'll cause me to obey today. I wonder if he'll actually get me up out of bed. No, it doesn't look like he is. And so you sleep till two. And you're like, yeah, well, God didn't get me up. And so as a result, you begin to live the life of absolute lethargy and slothfulness because you're blaming everything upon the fact that, oh, I don't want to do any work. God needs to do it all. When in actuality, you're in participation. You're a very real player in this drama. But you're not turning to the flesh to accomplish it. You're not turning to self or to your own pockets. You're turning to him. But when you get something by faith from him, what do you do? You spend it. You use it. If he sticks a weapon in your hand, you wield it. You don't just drop it and say, well, I can't handle that. That's what God has to handle. But he made this body, and he gave you this soul, and he gave you this mind so that you could now wield it and exert it in the direction of truth. Faith must work. If it doesn't work, it's dead. This is how faith works. It must exert this body, this soul, this mind, this heart, must exert in agreement with the truth of God's kingdom. And this is what it says in Romans 6, 12. Let not. It's a command, by the way. Let not. Sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. He's saying, exert. Let not sin therefore reign. That's what he says. You're not just a bystander. You're getting a command. You are getting a commission from the Most High God to do something. Are you going to just plead, oh, God, you never did anything. You didn't ask me to do it. You didn't enable me to do it. He's given you everything you need. You see, if I tell Kevin that there's a $10 bill back there, and he refuses to go in and get it, and he walks right out and fails the $9 test, who's responsible? You see, I made provision for that $10 for him, but he did not take it. He didn't exert and go out and grip it and say, this is now mine. Stick it into his pocket. And then walk out that door, and when he gets a $9 test, what does he do? 
He reaches in, not into what his own provision has been, but what God has given him in his soul. And he says, here it is. He has the substance of faith now. The reality of it in his life because he exerted. Uh, the final the one, the fifth one, the obeying. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So we're going to look at all five of these, and now we're going to begin to tie them together into sort of a working model so that you can begin to see how the soul works. It's very, very important that you remove all passivity from your soul, that you are not just a bystander watching God at work within your soul, but that you are a participant. And when the grace of God is moving upon you, you respond to it. And that is the art of believing. It's doing. You don't just know it to be true, but you are in agreement with it and you move forward. The gift of the minas. And here's a nice parable from Jesus. Now as they heard these things, Jesus, he, spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. So what did the, the king ask him to do? To do business till he came back. And he entrusted them with something, as we will see. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So there's some expectation that when the king goes off to the far country, he entrusts something. He gives something so that they can trade. They can do business until he returns. Isn't that a strange way of looking at the kingdom of heaven? We're not supposed to even work, are we? And here the king is saying, you must work. You must do business until I return. How much did you gain through trading? Huh? I didn't know I was supposed to be working. Whoa, I think we have a little discrepancy here. We think we're supposed to passively sit by and just let God hug us. Instead of recognizing that God has saved us, to actually make us a vessel fit to demonstrate to the kingdoms of this earth the power and the majesty and the glory of Almighty God. We have some business to do. So he said, And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Oh, good job, buddy. That guy was given one mina, and what came back? Ten minas. Hmm, pretty impressive. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, master, your mina has earned five minas. Not as impressive, but hey, that's not bad. Five times over. Then another comes saying, master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. Now, that's a nice statement, you know, at a certain level. It's like, you know what? I just wanted to make sure you got your mina back. What's a mina? Well, it's a, I know, it's a coin. It's a, it's, a, it's a currency. It's something you can use to buy and sell with in an in a ancient land. That's not what it is for us. It's grace. That mina is a trust of grace. And that grace can come in the means of faith, which in this message, that's what we're talking about. You've been given something. 
someone comes up to you and makes it clear that that bad food, I'm sorry, the bad food is over here, isn't it? The bad food, you know, that's killing you, it's making you uh, swell up, uh, is killing you. But you see that good food over here? That will save you. So why don't you repent and leave the bad food and come to the good food? You've been given a grace. You've been given a mina. However, the king returns and says, so what did you do with what I gave you? Well, you know, here's, here's the mina back that tells me that there's some good food out there to eat. You see, God has given you something, but what did you do? You're still all fat. God has given you the means of rescue to actually slim down, to, to heal those arteries, and to be able to have life. Instead, you're still living in death. So what does the king do when he returns and a man says, here it is in a handkerchief? This is the man's still reasoning. He says, you collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So here's the king's response. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Doesn't that seem just a little unjust? You're going to take the mina from this guy. I mean, he still has the mina. At least he didn't lose it. He still knows that there's a better way to live. Still knows that Jesus died on a cross, was buried and resurrected. He just didn't do anything with it. He kept going out that door and failing the $9 test. He just never believed. Is it that big of a deal? Yes. It's a huge deal. You have been entrusted with something. Put it to work. Put that grace to work. You know what you ought to do. Now do it. Reckon it yours. Present your body a living sacrifice. Exert the authority that you've been given. And obey the word of God. You can say, I don't know how to. I don't have strength. Yes, you do. Don't tell me you don't. You've been given the grace of God to live the impossible life. It's not you that can live it. It's he that will live it in and through you. You present your body to this reality and you let him be God. So, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When he has said this, he went, up ahead, went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. The treasure map. There's a few illustrations I'm going to give today that I gave back in May. They're good ones. And so, you know what? When you have a good illustration, you might as well use it again. The legend of the looted treasure. Wouldn't that be great if my dad really did have a map to buried treasure? And he had been entrusted with it. And it was inherited, you know, generation to generation. And someone told me, hey, Eric, did you know that your dad actually has a map for buried treasure? Wouldn't that be fun to find out? Especially for all of us guys in here. It's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Now, imagine that I am the legal heir, because I'm the firstborn of my uh, father. And imagine that it's going to pass down to the firstborn son. And I realize I'm the firstborn son. I mean, that's pretty exciting. Now, let's go back and let's erase that for a second. And let's say, what if I never heard about the treasure. If I never heard about the treasure, if I never knew that I was the firstborn son, if, no one, if I didn't have any knowledge about that, I didn't have the knowing, guess what? I would never ask my father. I would not even understand that it's there. I wouldn't know to pursue it. The fact that you need knowledge and you need to know is of extreme importance in this. So let's walk through this. I can know my father has the map. 
I can believe the map is true. So imagine that I know my, that I'm the firstborn son. I have legal right to this. I can know my father has the map. So someone could say, did you know your father has a map? Yes, true. I can believe the map is true. So do you think it's an accurate map? I do. I mean, that's, that's pretty exciting. My dad has a map. I honestly believe that if I followed it, it would take me to buried treasure. How exciting. I can believe that the map my father possesses is the only copy in existence today that can lead me to the treasure. So what if I knew that? Now, I don't know if you're seeing the parallel here. Did Jesus come and die for you? He did. Sure. So do you think that if someone believes in him, they can be saved? I do. Yes, I do. Do you believe that he's the only way to salvation? I do. I do. My dad could have a treasure map. How much treasure do you think I have in my pocket by knowing my dad has a treasure map? Even knowing that treasure map is valid, and even knowing that it's the only treasure map in existence to that treasure. So if I went after it, it's not that someone else would have stolen. It's the only one. Therefore, it will be there. Does that mean I have a treasure? No. I can call upon my father and get the map. Well, we're moving in the right direction here. I can fold it and stick it in my pocket, but the information about how to find the treasure, if it remains only in my pocket, is not the way one actually accesses the treasure. The treasure the map is referring to. That's a funny sentence. So imagine that I call upon my dad. You guys get on my case enough where I'm like, all right, I'll give him a call. And so I'm like, hey, Dad, uh, you remember that treasure map? He's like, yes, son. You're interested in that treasure map? Yes. And he goes, I'm really glad to know that you're actually asking for the treasure map. So now I ask for the treasure map. I get it. And I fold it up and stick it in my pocket. And I'm like, hey, guys, are you satisfied? Look, I asked for the treasure map. I have the treasure map, and I stuck it in my pocket. Are we fine? You see the difference between knowing about something, knowing that it is authentic, knowing that it is the only way to the treasure, actually still does not mean you have the treasure. What must I do to be saved? Er, that's an old-fashioned way of like, um, uh. Er, I mean, what must I do to find the long-lost looty treasure? See, you know the answer to this. Isn't it interesting? You know instinctively inside what is needed. There's something missing. And when we pat people on the back and say, so you know that there's a treasure? And they're like, yes, I do. You're like, praise God. Well, I guess that you have the treasure then, dear brother. You see, what we have done is we've falsified the process of going from death unto life. And we're creating some weird version of hybrid in here of people that have knowledge of maps, have maps in their pocket, but do not have treasure which is be- making Christianity the laughing stock of the world. Because none of us actually have treasure. None of us even expect to have treasure. We have elaborate doctrines which clarify why Christians will never have treasure this side of heaven. And yet they're not based on truth. They're based on everyone's experience. So being a true treasure hunter, let's change this illustration up and end up with something that actually works. I must know about the map. So there's the knowledge. I must reckon the map mine. Imagine that one day, if someone tells me about the treasure and says, and Eric, you're the, you're the heir. I'm the heir? That treasure map is yours. The moment I hear that, that treasure map is mine, what, what happens? I have a treasure. So Eric, are you poor? No. No, I have a treasure. Where is it? Well, I don't yet have it, but I do. How do you have it? You have it by faith. You see, you are possessing something by faith. However, there's more work to be done. You see, faith is just getting going. Faith has work to do. So I believe that there's a map. 
I hear about it, I believe it, but then I believe that that map is mine. And the moment I believe that map is mine, there's a joy within me because that treasure actually is mine. Think about it. If you knew that someone had told you, yeah, there's a treasure in your name, yeah, you inherited it, suddenly, instantaneously, the moment you believe, you're rich. You're rich. How? By believing that word. By taking it as yours. By crediting it to your account. Now I must present my life and body under the adventure and sign up as a seaman in pursuit of the promise of which the map speaks. So how do you get there? Well, you need to present your life, Eric. You need to forsake all that you have. You know that cozy little village that you live in by the, you know, the sea coast and you're a fisherman over here? You need to say adios to that life. And you see that ship over there? Well, there's pirates on it. That's right. You need to get on that ship and follow this map. You need to get to that island and you need to start digging. You do what's in this map and you will find it. I must exert and take real world steps, climb mountains, venture through valleys, cross raging rivers. I can't just esteem the map. I can't just get on a boat. What do I need to do? I need to exert. I need to actually go through difficulty. I need to actually do these things. I can't just esteem them from a distance or answer questions in Bible college about them. I have to do them. I have to heed the map. If it says go over a mountain, guess what? I go over a mountain. The whole while knowing that if I heed this map, I will find the treasure. I must do the work of a treasure hunter. You see, a treasure hunter, faith or a map without exertion, a map without presenting, a map without reckoning, a map without obedience is dead. There's no treasure. If you have a map but do not have the treasure hunter spirit, you have no treasure. Simply put, I must obey the map implicitly. What it says goes. When it says north, I must go north. When it says jump, I must jump. When it says dig, I must dig. Could you imagine? I get all the way to this island and I decide that I don't really like the treasure map. Yeah, it led me here, but I really don't want to have to dig. I really don't want to have to, you know, ford that river. Well, if you don't obey the map, you don't get the treasure. These five attributes of faith are essential to finding treasure. If I do the work of a treasure hunter and I implicitly heed the treasure map's instruction, I will find the treasure. And that's Christianity for you right there. If you do these things, it is unequivocally true, guaranteed, Always, you will find the treasure. You will find life and life abundance when you heed God's ways. So believing, faith that works. James 2. Now this is the context for a lot of our challenging scriptures. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man may say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Do you see the context for that line? That argument that James is giving, he's saying, So look, you're saying that you have faith. But if faith is not evidenced in real life activity, then it's false, it's dead. And so he gives this illustration of someone being destitute of daily food and naked. And he says, oh, and you say depart in peace. See, something's wrong with your faith. There's no action to it. There's no work to it. There's no labor that shows that you genuinely have changed, that you are a new person. 
Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believes that there is one God. Well, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So you can say, oh, I believe in God. I believe that there's only one God. Good for you. The devil believes it too. Obviously isn't helping him very much. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Listen to this line. This will get you. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Uh, what? Works? He was not justified by works. He was justified by faith, wasn't he? Listen to the argument that James is making. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Remember what the context is. He's talking about faith. When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, in Hebrews 11, the context for that very scene is talking about his great faith. So stay, stay together as we go through this. Don't go off in some la-la land. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. In other words, that was the action of his faith. What did Abraham do? He acted upon his faith. That's what he was doing, and it justified him by his work. But what kind of work was it? It was the work of faith. So, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, then, how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works. So now we're back at Jericho, and you have the two spies that are coming over. And Rahab believed in the power of God. However, it wasn't just that she believed, it's that she did the work of the believer. She did that which was an action to her faith, and this is what it says. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So hopefully you guys are starting to catch this, but this may be, be the clarifying thing you need. The work of faith. It's not the work of Adam that pleases or justifies. If you work in the flesh, if you work in your own strength, your own determination, it does not justify you. You are not justified by your own works. You're justified by faith in his work. But when you believe in his work... His work enters into you, and you do the work of faith. So it says, but the work of the Spirit, the work of faith, is that which justifies. You know what? There is a work. And in a sense, you are justified by that work. What is it? It's the work of faith. When faith is working in you, it does justify you. That's how it works. The gospel sword. Exchanging out the feather duster for something that can actually work. Most of us, as Christians, are lugging one of these things around. It's a feather duster of our own manufacture, our own strength. So you try and keep away the devil with this thing. He comes in, and you're like, like this, and he's not intimidated. He mocks you. You see, your own power, your own strength is not sufficient to deal with it. So the work of the law or your own self-effort does not save you. It does not justify you. You will not live the way you ought to live. But Jesus has supplied you with something. At the cross, he gave you something. He gave you a gift. And we can call that gift grace, but he gave you power. He gave you ability. He gave you strength. He gave you that which you need to live. 
So, how you respond to that work of the cross is everything to you. So, exchanging out the feather duster for something that can actually work. Now, we call this the gospel sword. So, let's imagine here. Okay, you can see a sword here. I'm going to set it down on the ground, right by my foot. It's been there for 2,000 years. No one ever told me. And since no one ever told me, guess what I've been wielding for 2,000 years? Well, in my life, let's say. Uh, I'm 42. So imagine that I've been wielding for 42 years a feather duster. My own strength, my own resolve, my own discipline. I really do desire to please you, God. But these wolves are coming in, these bears, these lions. Hordes of hell are coming against me. Temptation, weariness. I am overcome every time and my feather duster doesn't seem to hold them off and I'm weak and I'm destitute and I finally come to the point where I say I can't do this God I can't perform righteousness I can't be as I ought to be and what am I prepared for I'm prepared for the gospel I'm prepared to hear that he can Eric I know you can't but have you ever heard that I can and I did. And so that's the gospel shift right there. It's the great exchange to finally realize that you can't. Because for so many years we've been told you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do anything you put your mind to. And there's part of that that can be a wonderful motivator. However, it's also misleading. Because there is something you can't do. And that is that you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot do the work of righteousness and please God. You are in Adam, and in Adam you will surely die. You have no hope of life. All you have is an expectancy of a wrath to come. That's what you have. You see, you can't do something. And until you finally come to your end, you're not ready for a new beginning. But when you come to a new beginning, what do you hear? God clears his throat. He says, Eric, did you know? And the grace of God moves upon me, and what does it do? It gives me knowledge. It gives me understanding of something. Eric, I gave you a sword. I have a sword? Doesn't that sound fun for all of us guys? He's like, I have a sword? You have the gospel sword. It's the power of God unto salvation. I have it. I've been given it. It's the work of God on my behalf. He has awakened me to it, and now I know I have a sword. How exciting. Now, what if that sword has been sitting here for 2,000 years? I've never seen it before, but now for the first time, I sort of look down, and sure enough, there's a sword there. How exciting! However, there could be a sword there, but does that mean the sword is doing me any good? If I know it's there, and someone says, do you have a sword? I do. I have a sword! But if I don't do something with that sword, the sword actually offers me no merit, no virtue. It's strength is not being wielded in my life. And that's how most of us live. We are walked through a prayer of acknowledging that there's a sword there. That God has given us that which we need for life and godliness. Praise God. He's given us that which we need for eternal life. Amen. And yet, it's a faith that doesn't work. It's not doing anything with that knowledge. You've been given knowledge, but now respond to that knowledge. If you were given a sword and you're being attacked by the enemy, what do you think that sword is for? And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And he said unto him, and they said unto him, We have not so much as heard 
whether there be a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the gift of God, when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he purchased us something. I remember William Law said it this way. The cross didn't merely purchase us forgiveness from sins. It purchased us Pentecost. It purchases the power of the Almighty to come and live within us to enable us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. That's what God has given us. It's a sword. You see, God has given us a sword. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, we have the life, the efficacy of Jesus Christ being given to us. And who brings it to us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes from what Jesus Christ purchased on that cross and he brings us it in full measure so that we can begin to behave in such a way that is no longer defeated but triumphant. He didn't leave us orphans. He didn't leave us bereft of any defense. He left us a sword. He actually left us a whole armor. But I'm emphasizing one specific thing just for this particular illustration. It says, and take the sword of the Spirit. You're supposed to take it. You're not supposed to just know it. You're supposed to take it. So you are now hearing that you have a sword. I mean, that's actually pretty exciting. That's why it's called good news. It's like, whoa, are you telling me that I do not need to just be lunch for all of these enemies anymore, but that I can actually fight, that I have strength? Yeah, and the sword that I've given you cannot be parried, which means when it swings, nothing can stop its blow. Nothing. That's the kind of sword you've been left. Wow. The sword is there, it's ready to help me, but I don't know about it. If I don't know about it, it doesn't do me much good. So the believe stage number one is knowing. I hear about the sword, I believe it is there, that it is real. Jesus died to save me. The sword is for all who would believe. It's true. And so if you stop right there, did you know that the sword still hasn't really done much good for you? You're one step closer to it doing good for you. And if you didn't have that knowledge, you wouldn't ever know to pick it up. However, we all know that a sword sitting at our foot is not a sword that is efficacious for us, one that is effective in our life. So believe, stage two, reckoning. I call upon that sword, for that sword will save me. In that sword is my salvation. In that sword is my deliverance from bondage. That sword is, in fact, mine. I am saved. Finally, I've found my salvation. I may not have it in my hand experientially, but I have the sword's salvation by faith. And so the moment you hear about this sword, and say it's covered up with dust. Say you've never seen it before, but now you know it's there. Because that's the way that faith works. Faith doesn't actually always get to see the glint of the steel. What it says is it knows that there is a glint. It knows. You believe, and you reckon it yours. God says that sword is yours. And so suddenly you feel strong immediately. You've always been weak, but suddenly, I have a sword. I have a sword, and what are you beginning to do? You're beginning to stretch forth your right hand to take it. You see, you believe that a sword will be in this right hand, and no longer will you be defeated. When you reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin, that's exactly what's happening. You are crediting a sword unto your right hand. You say, I have it. I have it. And someone can say, how do you have it? Well, I have it by faith. It's not my own sword. It's not something I created. It's not my own strength. It's not by might nor by power. It's by the Spirit. This is how I have it. He has given it to me. He purchased it for me. And we begin to flex open our right hand. Believe stage number three, presenting. I grip the sword. I yield my body to the purpose of sword work. So you actually grip it. How God gets that sword into your hand, 
You believe and you grip. You take a hold. You present this grip, this hand, unto it. You see, this hand was developed and designed by the living God to grip a sword. And so guess what? The sword is built to fit right into that hand. Your soul is designed to hold the spirit. You are built with the capacity to house the living God. That's just the way it is. So grip him. Take him. Present and yield your body and allow him to come on in. So I've been given a hand that it might grip. I've been given a grip that I might take hold of this promise and wield it as a hand ought. I agree with the purpose of the sword and I take hold. I cleave. I grab it with my might. Exerting. I swing the sword. I know what I ought to do, and I do it. A sword is meant to be swung, not to be merely gripped. I actively engage in the action of swordsmanship. I swing and see evidence in this natural world of its power. My salvation is worked out in actual experience. My faith works. My faith is proven to be a saving faith. Okay, so you could go through all of that and just be holding a sword, but then when the temptation comes, what do you need to do? What does Paul say? He says, let not sin, therefore reign. And so you say, I have sword, and that sword is powerful. This sword can do the work. So what does God say? Swing it. That's what a sword is built for. You're like, but I've never been able to overcome this. I will overcome it. You exert the authority that I've given you. I've given you a sword. Do you believe that? Yes, I have a sword. Swing it! And the first time you swing it, it might not even be that powerful. It might be as weak as what I just did right there. Just sort of a limp-wristed swing. And guess what? It devastates the power of the devil. God loves to even use our first swings, the toddler swings of faith, and he will devastate and decapitate the enemy. So exert. And then believe stage five, obeying. I learned to swing the sword as the master swordsman swings it. I now walk in this faith, daily learning how to wield its power, heed the instructions of its proper use, and marshal its efficacy to the fullest potential. You don't just swing it once. Now you swing it daily, and you're becoming a master swordsman. It's called obedience, obedience to the faith. Now you do everything God commissions you to do. Jesus, he only spoke what the Father was speaking. He only did what the Father was doing. He swung the sword as the Father was leading him to swing it. And who was the one swinging it through Jesus? It was actually the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised him from the dead. The same Spirit that dwells in us is the one that swings the sword. But we participate. We must know. We must reckon. We must present. We must exert. And we must obey. We participate, though he does the work. The flashlight. Understanding the way a flashlight works. Now, this flashlight is built for a purpose, and that is that it's supposed to work. It's supposed to shine light. Every single one of us knows that, so I'm going to turn it on. Oh, no, this crazy thing. It's good for nothing but being thrown in the trash. It actually doesn't work. But let me explain why it doesn't work. This is going to be a challenge here. You see, inside this flashlight, there's a compartment in which power is supposed to be stowed away. However, inside of it, there is something. I don't know that you can see it or read it. It says self. And as long as self is packaged inside of this this flashlight, it will not work. But when this flashlight empties itself, 
and makes itself available and presents and yields itself to the living God, suddenly it can be filled with that which will supply it power and actually enable it to shine light. You see, we are meant to be like lights in this world. However, you try and be a light without the power source. You can't. And so what you must do is turn unto God and believe. And what you do in believing isn't just that you believe that, oh, a light, the flashlight is supposed to work. It's that it must do the work of believing. It must empty itself. It must present itself. It must reckon those batteries its own. And then it must allow God to place them in it and allow God to turn it on. So let's walk through this. The tripartite being, just like the temple in the Old Testament, there's three portions or three places within the temple. You have the outer court, you have the inner court, and you have the holy of holies. Well, it's the same with us. There's a body, there's a soul, and there's a spirit. The flashlight is the body. So this is the body. This is the encasement for the operation of shining light. And yet, there's a grip. You see, without a hand, an operator outside, like a grip, which is, we're going to call that the soul. The grip is you. It's your mind, will, and emotions. If you don't participate in this, there's no one to click that light on. It's not even that big of a job, is it? Believe, Eric. And I'm like, oh, what do I need to do? Click the light on. You're not the battery source. You're not the one that brings the light. You're not the one that built this thing in the first place. But for whatever reason, you have a thumb. Isn't that funny? God says, I want to use you in this process. We bungle the whole thing up, and yet he still desires to use us in the process. We're a thumb. That's what we are. And so then there's the battery holder, the spirit. And this one was full of self, and yet it needs to be emptied. And so as this one's being emptied, what's it being emptied for? You know, if it just remains empty, it sounds very spiritual, but it still doesn't work. No, no light. You see, this must have power in it. It must have something from outside of itself that was, it was built for. It's interesting that three batteries just fit in just perfect. It's like someone was designing this thing. They knew that it needed batteries, and they knew that a cloth with self on it would not quite make it work. And so as a result, when we do it according to the manual, let me, okay, let me click through this. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. For as the flashlight without the batteries is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What's the work? Well, it's believing. But how does it work? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, you need to turn and believe. The grace of God has worked upon you, and he said, that's your salvation. You turn and you're clothed in Jesus Christ, and what immediately happens? He makes you clothing for himself so that you can actually do the work of faith. You see, you, you don't save yourself. It's not your work from the beginning to the end. It's his work. But you have a role in this. You don't just see what is true. You respond to what is true. So let's first deal with the bad news. You are condemned, guilty, culpable for flashlight negligence, lost in darkness, unable to see. The flashlight is dead, powerless, unable to perform, crammed full of garbage instead of batteries, not pleasing, not functioning as it ought. Oh, no! It's called bad news. The battery holder is empty. It is crammed full of self instead of batteries, and as a result, cannot function as it ought, supplying zero power to the flashlight it was designed to empower. So what's the good news? Meanwhile, the batteries have been made available. 
They're waiting to be found, desiring to be utilized in order to bring power, light, life, and purpose to the flashlight. Imagine you've had this flashlight your entire life and someone tells you, hasn't anyone ever told you that there are batteries for that flashlight? Well, I mean, that's almost just too good to be true. There are. God has supplied for us batteries. He's supplied for us the power of God unto salvation so that we can behave and live and function as we ought to function. So don't just hear it. Do something about it. Respond to this reality. You've just been told that there are batteries. What should you do? The work of the believing grip. Believing, stage one. Knowing. Your mind must hear the news about the batteries that have been given. Reckoning. Then you must reckon in your soul that the word spoken is true and credit to your account that now your flashlight can finally work. Okay, now I know we're talking about a flashlight. But in your life, we're not talking about a flashlight. You tired of the impotence and the powerless nature of your Christianity? Jesus Christ has made a way to give you that which is needed to live inside of you, to enable light to shine, to enable virtue, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to shine. So that sin no longer has rule over you, but righteousness and his agenda in your body actually now has power to rule. He gets his way in your body, and no longer does the flesh and the power of sin get its way. Do you know it to be true? And I could say, do you have it in yourself? You could say, no, I don't. But do you have it? And your answer should be, I do. How? Have it by faith in the word of God. That's your confidence. Faith in his word which cannot lie. Believing stage three, presenting. You must forsake your previous way of handling the flashlight. You must yield up your flashlight, be emptied of self, and allow the real batteries to come in. So you must allow God to unscrew the lid. You're like, God, what are you doing there? What are you doing there? Uh, Everything in me is going to fall out if you uh, unscrew the lid. Everything in you needs to fall out. And unless all of that self gets out, I can't stick all of me in. And so he's like, uh, unscrewing the lid. And we're like, God, well, what does this mean? Let him do what he must do. And out comes self. And what does that do? It makes room. It makes space available. You see, you get off the throne, and now the throne is available for the king of kings to sit on it. Exerting. So let's go through this process here. Exerting. You must turn on the flashlight in agreement with the owner's manual. Who did all the work? Who built the flashlight in the first place? God Almighty did. Who's the one that even explained to you why your flashlight wasn't working and gave you the law that says unless you shine light, you cannot live? And you're like, God, I cannot get this thing to work. How many times have you clicked on that button and tried to turn it on? How many times have you beaten it against the wall and said, mine doesn't work? But what was the law doing? It was showing you that you had a problem. What was your problem? It exposed The fact that you had no power within, but instead you'd crammed you into the center of your life. You're in rebellion against God. There's only one who is ever supposed to dwell inside of this to make it work. And there you sit. You have violated everything. You have a just condemnation over your life. Because unless this is as it ought to be, it cannot please God, who is the one who designed it to shine light into this world. And so what did you do? You see, you believed. 
You said, God, I am wrong. And I turn to you to correct this. And what does he do? He corrects it. First of all, he awakened you by his grace to show you your need. And that's a work of grace. But don't stop there. Don't stop at the place where you know that your flashlight is messed up. Get out that which is messed up. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Empty self out of this. Let him unscrew the top, as scary as that is, and dump you out so that he can enter in. And when he does, he's done all the work. And what does he say to you? Turn it on. You're like, huh? What? Turn it on. You see, he gave you a grip. That's the thing that you have in this whole thing. It's a grip. Can the grip make a flashlight work? You can squeeze really hard. What happens? Light? No. But when he does his work, suddenly you can now do your work. What's your work? To believe. That's how it works. He does his work, which is everything. You do your work, which is what? To believe. It's that simple. That's your job and even your job. And even to get that thumb to press up the way it's supposed to, you need grace for it. You need God to even help you with your work, but you still have a job to do. So do it. Oh, look at that. And suddenly the impossible has taken place. The life and the light that you always were told in modern Christianity could never shine in and through a life. It was all an exaggeration. Oh, it's not. It is very real. You can shine as a light in this world. But you must do it God's way. You must believe and be saved. You must repent of your old life. You must allow self to get out. You must allow the old man to be crucified in Christ Jesus and allow a new man to dwell within. Obeying. You must get to know the owner's manual and do all that it says to ensure that your flashlight remains a working flashlight forever. And technically, I guess this flashlight would always be on. Always. Is there a time when we should uh, empty out the, flat, the, the batteries? By the way, these are eternal batteries with eternal life. They never grow weary and tired. So you, you're impressed with the Energizer Bunny? Wait till you see God's batteries. <laughs> they last forever. You can leave the light on always. And there's never a reason to unscrew the cap and to dump out those batteries and to stick in self again. Oh, just for Friday night? Just for the weekend? No, what will happen to your light immediately? It will go out. You see, you live in accordance with the word of God and you obey and what happens? Everything works. You see, your life works. Faith without works is dead. But what about faith that works? It's alive. Faith that works is alive. Faith that does as faith ought. Faith that is in agreement with the word of God. Faith that allows the Holy Spirit to move on in and take hold of this life. Works. So when you click on that power in agreement with the word of God, in an agreement with the fact that he is your power within, your light shines. From death to life. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. We are changed to bear the same image of Jesus Christ? You try that on your own, with your own strength, with self wadded up and crammed into your flashlight. You try and shine light that is Jesus. You can't. However, we are being changed into the same image from glory to glory. But how? How are we doing that? Who's doing the work? Even as by the Spirit 
of the Lord. That's our power source. Jesus Christ purchased it for us. Now we reckon it ours in Christ Jesus. We have access into that throne room of grace, and we come unto the Father, and we say, Father, I need what you have. And he says, thanks for asking, because my answer is yes and amen. To anyone who is clothed in Jesus, his answer is yes and amen. And what does he give to us? He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the very life of Christ in spirit form. And we have power to live. So here's our illustration. We're dead, and then grace comes upon us. And we know. We actually have knowledge of the truth. But we're still dead, we're still dead, and we're still dead. And then what works upon us? But the grace of God. And we begin to understand what it means to reckon. No, I'm supposed to take that. I'm not supposed to just stand near the sword. I'm actually supposed to understand that that sword is mine. I have a sword. It's not just that there is a sword there. It's that that sword is mine. And then what works upon us? Well, we come to life. And then what works upon us? Grace. And then we present our grip unto that sword. And what happens? We're even more alive because now there's a huge difference between knowing that sword is mine and actually having it in my grip and knowing. It's like the difference between Knowing that you have a fortune and having it in your hands, you present your body a living sacrifice, and guess what? You're even more alive. You're in agreement with Scripture. And then what do you do? The grace of God works upon you, and you exert, and you swing the sword maybe for the first time. And yet, you're even more alive. And then what comes upon you? Grace. What's building you? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is building you. That's what the grace of God is. It's the gift of God working on your behalf. He's ever living to make intercession for you. He's saving you to the uttermost. He does not want you to live in a knowledge of truth, but a deadness of soul, an unrepentant place. That is why you feel conviction in that place. And if you remain in that place convicted and hardened to it, you die. But if you are in that place and you receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you say, I must turn from this. And you repent and turn unto the living God. You, you live. It's that simple. So God works upon you. You swing the sword and you're even more alive. And then grace continues its work on you to teach you how to obey and to say, follow the word of God, no matter what it says. And you obey and now you have life abundant and full of glory. And that's the cycle of the Christian life. This is life and life abundant. You believe, you live. This is the process of each of our souls constantly, day in and day out. This is our work. We clock into the Father's business, and what are we doing? We're knowing, we're reckoning, we're presenting, we're exerting, and we're obeying. That is the life we live, but how do we do it? By grace. By grace you are saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And it is not by works, lest any of you could boast. Lest I could come up with some thought that, well, yeah, you need grace, but I don't. We all need grace. We all need the work of God, and so we believe that we need the work of God. We turn to him and we say, you are my salvation. And that's what saves us. But then that, work, that faith must continue to work, and that's how it works. Faith begets faith. You swing once with that sword, and what happens? Get a big smile on your soul. And you're like... Wow, that works. And so what do you do again? You swing it again, this time a little harder. And what happens? Even a bigger smile. It's called faith. Faith is constantly growing. Faith is always increasing because faith begets faith. I remember when uh, we had little kids, the, the statement was sleep begets sleep. So you're always trying to keep your children asleep. It's like, that begets sleep. Let's keep these guys asleep. In other words, sleep for a little child, supposedly, makes them sleep better 
later. So you're like, go to sleep, little one. But that's the same with faith. Faith, the more you exercise faith, the more you do faith, the more faith you have. Faith increases faith. Responsibility. Isn't that a great word, responsibility? You have a responsibility. Remember I said it's pretty small, and that's you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to click the on button on the flashlight. God throws you the lifeline. You must grab a hold of it. Your mina must be invested. Your faith must work. You have a responsibility before God. You are not just a victim to sin. And you're not supposed to be passive to the truth of the kingdom. You've been awakened. You've been given a mina. Now invest it. Click on the light. Agree with God. You have a responsibility. Now think about this word. You have an ability to respond. You do. It's called grace. So your responsibility is to do what God has given you the grace to do. Do it. When the king returns and he says, what did you do with the mina that I gave you? Say, well, I didn't have any ability to respond. That's a lie. You had the mina. You had the grace. And you had a responsibility. You had an ability to respond and you didn't take it. You respond today. By the grace of God, you respond. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Listen listen to this last line. Believest thou this? That's God turning to us. He said, are you willing to put that to action? You believe this? Click on the light. Reckon it yours. Do you believe that those who are dead yet shall live if they believe in him? We say, I do. So do you have it in your own pockets? No. But do you have it? Yes. How do you have life? How do you have confidence? How do you have an assurance that you are a child of God? I have it by faith. Faith in what? His promise. His word. He has said it. He cannot lie. And pretty soon... You have a sword in your hand. And he says, swing it. Swing it. Exert this life that I'm giving you. Use it. Wield it. Be strong. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.